think with me for a moment, what's the best gift you've ever received? Maybe it was something really nice that your spouse got you or a good friend got you. Uh, maybe it was something you got as a kid on Christmas morning. Um, my wife has gotten me a lot of really great, really incredible gifts. And Carrie, listen, know that I am really grateful for all of the amazing gifts you've gotten me. But, but listen, when I think about the greatest gift I, I ever received, I'd have to say it was on Christmas morning of 1993, like 27 years ago. I came after a really difficult November. My younger brother had just lost a year-long battle with cancer that month, and our, our family, my family, we were still mourning that loss, grieving that loss. It was a really hard, it was a really sad season for us. And so I woke up that Christmas morning, I was nine years old. Before I even got out of bed, I, I prayed. I stopped and I prayed. I said, God, please, if nothing else, please, please, would there be a Sega Genesis gaming console waiting for me down there? It's that year, it was all I wanted. And honestly, I didn't think there was a, was a really good chance I was actually gonna get it. But, but sure enough, the last present I opened on that Christmas morning, guess what it was? It was a Sega Genesis gaming console. I was thrilled. I remember distinctly after opening that gift in my basement, looking up to the heavens. I, I remember thanking some combination of God and my brother Kyle uh, for looking out for me in that moment. I loved that gift. I'm sure that even in that moment, I said something to that extent, like, I love it. I love this thing. And I'm sure we've all used that phrase before after we've received something really great. Like, I, I love these shoes or, or I love this car or I love these socks. Maybe, maybe not that last one. I'm pretty sure no one has ever said that last one. Unless there were really nice socks, then I guess you know, that would make sense that you would say something like that. But, but here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we really love these things? Like, do we love them the same way we say we love other people? Or, or, or do, I really, do I really love these shoes as much as I love my children or as much as I love my wife or, or as much as I, I love, say, God? Probably not, at least hopefully not. So, so then what do we mean when we use this word love? Does it mean just one thing or are there multiple layers to this thing that we call love? And, and why, why are we so drawn to it? I mean, what is it about love? What even is love? Why is it so difficult to describe, but it's, but it's really so easy to recognize when you see it or when you feel it? Why does this one little word seem to be used so casually in some instances, but then in other instances it carries such great weight and it has so much gravity to it? You know, for some of us, it might be easier uh, for us to think about the worst gift we ever received. Can you think about that? Uh, I'm pretty sure all of us have received some pretty bad gifts before, gifts that were so carelessly purchased that we wonder if the, if the person who got us the gift even knows us at all. You know, I think of uh, Clark Griswold in the movie uh, Christmas Vacation. Maybe you know this scene when he was waiting for his year-end bonus, and instead of receiving that, he received a year-long membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. They are gifts that make us feel anything but loved, gifts that, that make us feel unseen. Or even worse, I'm sure many of us have received gifts that, um, gifts that obligate us, gifts that have strings attached, gifts that are given with expectations loaded on them. And, and listen, whether we realize it or not, so many of the gifts that we receive and that we give fall into this category. We give in order to receive something in return, whether it be time or attention or affection or approval or, or relational security. And this is just 
sort of subtly built into so much of the gift giving and receiving that we do, whether we realize it or not. Now, this is what I would call transactional love. This is a, I'll do this for you as long as you do this for me type of love. It's a, it's I'm going to give this to you in order to show you that I'll hold up my end of the bargain as long as you do the exact same thing. And this kind of love, this transactional love, it can be controlling. It can be manipulative. And the closer that you look at this kind of love, transactional love, you start to wonder, is it really love at all? Luke 1, the beginning of the Christmas story, in verse 26, it starts like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is an incredible moment in in time and in history. The angel Gabriel has come bearing great news, amazing news of this incredible gift for Mary, and and not just Mary, but for the entire world. But you you can tell uh, that Mary has received some pretty bad gifts before because look at her response. Look at her response in verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I'm genuinely curious as to what was going on inside Mary's mind in this exact moment, because it's almost like you can, you can see the wheels turning in her mind as she, as she wonders and she stops and she's like, wait, 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 what, what's going on right now? Who are you? What, what is the catch? What do you want from me? This isn't normal. This, is, this seems like one of those too good to be true moments right now. Where are the cameras? And, and what she's trying to do, it, it says here in, in the text that she's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Why does she respond this way? Like, is this a totally weird, abnormal response? Or would most of us find ourselves responding the exact same way if we were in her shoes? You know, I think that Mary responds this way in in part because in her broken world, in our broken world, we know that innately very few people, if anyone, really has our best interest in mind. Very few people in this world really, truly, selflessly care about our well-being. And isn't that what real love really is? The, the giving of oneself, no strings attached for the benefit of someone else. You know, Mary knew innately that encountering that kind of love, no strings attached, selfless love, was as rare as can be and, and, and figured in this moment, or at least she was trying to discern, that this was another instance of that all too common kind of love that we just talked about, the transactional love. And so she finds herself greatly troubled in the moment. You know, if I, could, if I could describe the past year in two words, I think greatly troubled would be perfect, don't you? I mean, what with the, with the pandemic and, and the social unrest and the social distancing and all the political chaos lately? I mean, this year has been really hard. It's been really difficult. It's been greatly troubled. If you were ever on the fence wondering if we live in a broken world, this year has done its best to convince us that yes, 100%, we absolutely live in a broken and messed up world. And while that's true, and then this world is certainly, without a doubt, greatly troubled, this is in part because I think we as people, we are broken. We are greatly troubled. I mean, the way we've processed and handled and responded to this year and the difficulties it's brought, I think it's shown all of us how broken we are as people. I mean, you, you, you don't have to spend much time on Facebook to realize how frustrated and how angry we've become. 
And, and, and I don't have to have posted my anger online for it to be real or for me to actually be guilty of it. Trust me, I know this from personal experience. I, by God's grace, have not rage posted anything online this year. But I have rage posted many a response in my heart. You know, I read something online that I disagree with or I see someone's sinful response to some other person's broken understanding of something and, and, and I, I'll fantasize or I'll stew on some response that I'd love to post. And, and listen, I know I'm not alone in that. You know, and in one sense, um, anger is a very natural response to the past year. You know, anger, on certain conditions, it's not necessarily sinful or wrong. And that's because anger rightly expressed, uh, it gets at two things. According to counselor David Powlison, anger identifies something in your world that matters to you. And it proclaims that you believe something is, is wrong. You know, the, the emotion of anger, when we feel anger, it's our God-given capacity to respond to something that's gone wrong that we think is important. And, and we see throughout scripture, we see throughout God's word that God responds in anger to the wrong in this world that's important to him. And so, so all anger isn't bad. But, but here's the thing. Last time I checked, none of us are God. You know, we, we get confused and, and we think we are, but we're not. And, and oftentimes our anger moves beyond the right and the reasonable and moves into the sinful and the selfish. You know, anger, listen, anger is sinful when this motto becomes the anthem ringing in our hearts. My will, my way, right away. My will, my way, right away. Looking back on this past year, if, if you found yourself frustrated and angry, if you sense that dark feeling of, of, of hatred rise up in your heart, is it because you are rightly upset about something that's genuinely wrong that's also important to God? Or are you upset because you, you didn't get your will, you didn't get your way, you didn't get it right away? You know, think about the, think about the guy who, who goes the speed limit, the guy who actually goes the speed limit in the left-hand lane. It's an appalling thought, right? slowing you down from getting to your destination 17 seconds quicker, right? How have you responded in your heart to that individual? For me, it's not been good. Or your kid asking you to play, to engage with you, to spend time with you, but they're interrupting you from that very essential, very important work that you happen to be doing on your phone in the moment. How, how, have, you, how have you treated them? How have you responded to them in those moments? Here's what I believe is at the root of this sinful anger in our hearts and the sinfully angry responses we have with people. It's, it's this. We believe the lie that ultimately, that, that no one has our best interests at heart. That, that no one truly, really, selflessly cares about us and our good. And then listen, if we believe that, if that's the reality we're living in, if we believe that no one has our best interests at heart, then, then we're naturally going to feel compelled to do everything we can to secure our happiness and to secure our comfort and to secure our peace here and now. Because guess what? If we don't do it, no one's going to do it for us. And, and, and anyone, stranger, friend, even family member, it doesn't matter. Anyone that gets in the way of my will, my way, right away, they're going to experience my wrath. And they're going to experience my sinful anger. Uh, but but this, is, this is no way to live. It's an awful existence. It's a miserable existence. I think it's also why our, the most common form of love that, that we have in this world is transactional love. Uh, this for that type of love because 
Why would I ever want to freely give you anything if I'm not sure I'll be getting something in return? And I actually might be worse off than I was before. That's just going to make me more angry. It's going to make me more upset. How do we free ourselves from this trap, from that cycle of, of sinful, selfish, destructive behavior? Because we can't do it ourselves. No amount of personal effort to change it will, will really help. We can try for a while, but we all know how broken we all are. We all know how messed up we are. We're going to fall short. Uh, uh, no church, no powerful person, no government is going to change this for us. And so, so what do we do? You know, my, my favorite poet is this guy named W.H. Auden. And in the early 40s, he wrote this poem uh, called For the Time Being. It's a really long poem. It's a Christmas poem. And there are these long monologues throughout the poem, different individuals in the Christmas story, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, all of that. And if you just humor me for a moment and let me read some of uh, my favorite stanzas in this poem. It's from the Advent section of this poem. And it, and it goes like this. Alone, alone, about a dreadful wood, of conscious evil runs a lost mankind. Dreading to find its father, lest it find the goodness it has dreaded is not good. Alone, alone, about our dreaded wood. Where is that law for which we broke our own? Where now that justice for which flesh resigned her hereditary right to passion mind, his will to absolute power, gone, gone. Where is that law for which we broke our own? The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. Was it to meet such grinning evidence. We left our richly odored ignorance. Was the triumph answer to be this? The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. I, I love that last stanza. See, I said it right there. I love it. I love that last stanza. I do. And while there are parts of this, this poem that, that I, I don't quite understand what he's trying to say, I, I think that this last stanza, I, I get it. And I think it's really powerful in what it communicates that we, broken, lost, sinful, angry people, we, we demand something more than, than the mere possible. Than, than hard work or good living or being nice people. As Auden so, as, as he puts it so well, we who must die demand a miracle. We demand that the infinite become a finite fact. We demand that the eternal perform this, this seemingly temporal act. If we want to see the cycle of, of selfish, destructive, angry behavior that we, that we live in recede into the horizon, then, then we demand something bigger, someone bigger than ourselves. Bring us a love outside of ourselves. Something bigger and more powerful and more real than our, our transactional love. And in his book, The Four Loves, on the very first page, C.S. Lewis, he describes two types of love, need love and gift love. And gift love is the opposite of this transactional love we've been talking about. It's a kind of love that doesn't have expectations. It doesn't have these demands that it, that it wants. It's a love that's completely and totally dependent, not on the person receiving the love, but, but totally on the giver. You know, with this kind of love, the receiver has to only do one thing. And that's, and that's receive. 
You know, describing this gift love, Lewis writes this. He says, the typical example of gift love would be that love which moves a man to work and plan and save for the future well-being of his family, which he will die without sharing or seeing. Divine love is gift love. The father gives all he is and has to the son. The son gives himself back to the father and gives himself to the world and for the world to the father and thus gives the world in himself back to the father too. Gift love is the kind of love God has for us. It's the kind of love that God offers to us through his son, Jesus. And it's the only thing, it's the only thing in this world that's powerful enough to break us away from living for my will, my way, right away. It's the only thing that's going to unshackle us from a this for that type of living. And it's this gift love of God that has compelled him to to move and to act in such a way really to save us from ourselves, to save us from this destructive, broken cycle for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This, This right here, that is the good news that Gabriel was delivering to Mary, that this special kind of love was entering into the world through her, through her womb, in that lowly manger. We who must die, we demand a miracle. And here it is, in the form of this child, the greatest gift the world has ever received. Remember, Mary, initially, she was greatly troubled by this announcement. Again, maybe she was afraid, maybe she was skeptical of the demand and what it would mean for her and and what would be asked from her in return. But... But look at how the angel responds. Look at how Gabriel reassures her. Look at what he reminds her of in verse 30 of of Luke 1. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. We've already seen once in verse 28 that she was called the favored one. But here Gabriel reminds her again that she has found favor with God. She is loved by God. She needed reminding. And we, as recipients of this great love of God, oftentimes just need reminding. We need to be reminded that we have done nothing to earn, nothing to deserve this love that God has for us. It is completely and totally free and generous and limitless. It's a limitless love given to us through the gift of this Jesus. Jesus, completely and totally God, and now also completely and totally human, a a miracle. This Jesus, born to to Mary and Joseph, raised and apprenticed under this carpenter. This Jesus, through childhood and adulthood, never once violated God's law. He, He lived a completely and totally perfect life, a miracle. This Jesus, who, who though he didn't deserve it, was violently, brutally tortured, brutally killed, and received upon him the wrath of God the punishment we deserved. Jesus, he took it all in our place. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A miracle. And why? Why did he do all of this? He did it because of his love for us. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends and you are my friends. The gift love of God goes so far as to compel him to lay down his life for us, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserved so that we could take upon ourselves his perfect record, his righteousness, so that we could be forgiven, not just of of, of all the wrong things we've done, but also the right things we do in the wrong ways. And 
this is the gift love of God. And so in the face of this great love, unlike any other love we've known or seen or experienced, well, how should we respond? What, if anything, is required of us or demanded of us? And I'll put it simply like this, and some of you might bristle at this right now, but when it comes to the love of God in Christ, in this moment, listen, it is better to receive than to give. It is better to receive than to give. And listen, I know that sounds selfish, but but look at the impact this kind of love has on a person. Look at Mary again. She went from being skeptical and guarded and fearful and and greatly troubled to, to look at verse 38, to her response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, Mary gives herself to God. She commits herself to him. She says, I, I am the servant of the Lord. She commits herself to the Lord's will, the Lord's way, right away here. And she does this not because she feels bound to it, not because it seems like something that's expected of her in the moment, and not because it's her duty or her obligation. She does this out of of love. You see, this is what the gift love of God does when we humbly receive it, knowing that, that we don't deserve it, We haven't earned it. It produces real, selfless, life-giving love in us. It's it's what it did for Mary. She knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, listen, that in this moment, the living God, the creator of the universe, he has her best interests at heart. What an amazing comfort that she receives this great gift love of God in this moment, and it frees her to freely give of herself. This is why in this moment, in this instance, in our current circumstance with everything that we face, as we look to the manger and onto the cross and even further to the return of Jesus, we need to understand that the way from anger to love is fueled by the fact that this Jesus has your best interests at heart. This is the only thing that will free us from transactional love. This is the only thing that will free us from a selfish, angry heart. The love God shows us and gives us in Jesus is the only thing that will break us free from my will, my way, right away. It's the only thing that will allow us to forget about ourselves. Trust that Jesus has our best interests at heart and and free us to put other interests ahead of ourselves, even even people we dislike, even people we find annoying or or offensive. You know, C.S. Lewis writing about the effects of, of God's great love in our lives, he writes this divine gift love in the man enables him to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior, and the sneering. Finally, by high paradox, God enables men to have a gift love toward himself. There is, of course, a sense in which no one can give to God anything which is not already his. And if it is already his, what have you given? But since it is only too obvious that we can withhold ourselves, our wills and hearts from God, we can, in that sense, also give them. God's love received by us is is really the only thing that's going to enable us to truly love God and love others well. You know, without this miracle of his love in our lives, we we head toward that abyss, toward that dark, hopeless, angry way of living. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. And we see this love on full display in that manger where the infinite elevated the finite, where the eternal moved in the temporal, where God, he became man. He he was born a baby and he became the best gift that, that any one of us could ever receive. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love in our lives. 
We thank you that, that even though we have done nothing to earn it or deserve it, in fact, we have done quite the opposite. You still, motivated by your kindness, by your mercy, by your grace, by your love, sent your son Jesus to be born a baby, to be born in that lowly manger, to live the life that none of us could live, to die the death that we deserved, but to rise again. And now you offer us this gift of, of abundant life. So God, as we turn our eyes and as we turn our attention during this Advent season back toward that manger, Lord, would you remind us, would you remind us of the great love that you have for us? in a season of chaos, in a season of frustration, in a, in a season of increasing anger and hatred. Lord, would your love enter in, into our hearts, into our lives? Would it transform us? And as we receive this great gift love that you offer us, with no strings attached, with no conditions, with no obligations, or do we then turn outward toward those around us, even and especially the unlovable, and love them well. We thank you for this miracle, Lord, that changes everything for your son, Jesus. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.